Hello, and welcome to Artbox CNV. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I met up with Henry Mendel at the opening of a group show he's in at the Seattle NFT Museum. Henry's works are curations of his ongoing survey of contemporary artistic practices, scientific principles, the human condition, and their effects they have on our lives. He was trained as a traditional painter and printmaker. He uses computer software to build engrossing abstract imagery. We talk about that and the rules of design elements, when a piece of art is finished, and of course, his words of advice. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. All right. Well, first and foremost, thank you for doing this. And uh, we are here at the Seattle NFT Museum, getting ready for an opening that you're going to be a part of tonight, a group show. So I'm sure you're excited about that. Absolutely. So let's get started. So introduce yourself. And uh, how did you get started in this? Well, thank you. It's great to be on Artbox DMV. (laughs) Uh, I'm Henry Mandel. I'm from New York City. Originally. Yes. Currently in the Pacific Northwest in uh, Tacoma, Washington, which is a very cool town just south of Seattle. For those of you who've never been on the West Coast, I recommend visiting. Uh, how do you get started? That's such an interesting question. I, I've thought about art my whole life. I mean, the sort of uh, minting moment was my mom taking me to the Metropolitan Museum of Art when I was nine years old. She dragged me to the city to go to some conference or whatever, and I was completely bored. And afterwards, all the ladies that were there said, come on, let's go to the museum. I'm like, that sounds interesting. What goes on there? So we walk up Fifth Avenue, and there's this building that's like big as a battleship. And I'm like, okay. So we go inside, and we're wandering around. And eventually, we come to Jackson Pollock's Autumn Rhythm Number 30, which is a kind of a watershed painting in the history of contemporary art. For those that haven't seen it, it's this huge abstract painting famously made on the floor with Jackson Pollock dripping paint, industrial house paint, in this crazy pattern that looks a lot like patterns you would see in nature, but with these deep colors. And it was just, it was a mural. It was probably 10 by 25 feet. And I don't know, something happened in my brain when I saw it. I didn't know anything about art. And, and the most amazing thing for me was none of the adults could explain to me what it was. Now, well, yeah. adults in my life at that time had the answers for everything. But they were stumped. I said, what is that? They said, that's a painting. I go, no, it's not. It's, it's crazy. What is it? Well, they, well, it's, um, it's abstraction. I said, well, what's that? Well, it's modern art. I go, what's that? They said, we don't know. And I said, awesome. They are complete. You so, got them stumped. Yeah. So I knew there was something there. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's like a sports for some people or music. You have a the artist John Chamberlain calls it a, a sympathetic nervous system reaction. It's automatic. Yeah. It's in you. It is in and you. And it's got to come out, you know, like the blues or, or whatever. You see it and all of a sudden, ding, and you're like, what is that? So anyway, after that, I, I got in a lot of trouble because I went home and took my mom's nail polish and started spilling it all over the tabletop. So I went <laughs> berserk. <laughs> so they said, okay. We're going to try and discourage this. Anyway, yeah, that's how it started for me. So it started down that path. Yeah. As you started going through your life, and uh, how did you find yourself in the world of NFTs? How did you find yourself in the digital art world? Well, that's a big jump. I think um, coming up, I think the first artist that really got me thinking about the, the technique of art was M.C. Escher. 
Oh, yeah. That's in his good lithographs. Yeah. And so there was a lot of surrealism and sort of heavy duty illustration, but there was also this sort of mystical element yeah. and scientific element. So that element of science, I was always interested in science also. So that was what got me thinking. And um, I ended up going to art school. I went to, got a BFA in college and then studied at the School of Visual Arts in New York City and at Parsons. Uh, good school. Uh, very, very good. Studying graphic design because I figured I better learn a trade. <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> we were just talking about my trade. Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, you got to learn a trade. And was doing graphic design for a while. And I was interested in typography. And then uh, one of the first things that really sort of triggered me into what I'm doing now is that Adobe unlocked their fonts like in the 90s. You, you couldn't, they were all, you couldn't mess with them. You couldn't change their shapes or do anything like that. So when they unlocked the fonts, I started messing around with the shapes of letters. And that got me into the first sort of phase of the work that I'm doing now by altering text. So I was working digitally, you know, sort of from the get-go with wow. desktop computers. Yeah. It's like you started working digital before they called it digital. No pun intended. No, no, that's true. Yeah. It was all experimental. Yeah. And I had to, in order to get, so you only had these little like um, desktop inkjet printers, like an Epson 1270, I think it was, about 14 inch wide. Yep. So I would print out strips of those and sort of tile them together to get a bigger scale piece. Yeah. It was labor intensive and it was sort of stupid, but <laughs> there were no big plotters back then. There was just desktop thing. Just real quick, when did the plotter start hitting the scene? Was it in the early or late 1990s or was it the early 2000s? So there were ink plotters, sort of ink pen plotters in the 1960s ah, that they were okay. doing technical output with. And that was sort of on graph paper. And I think they were maybe like 20 inch wide okay. outputs. And that was the way it was until the dates you just quoted, I think it was the late 90s. Okay. Yeah, and they started making bigger, they didn't have inkjet yet, but no. they had these sort of CAD plotters, which a lot of um, algorithms and uh, code writers started experimenting with. To I make didn't art. know that. Oh yeah. There's huh. a whole sort of history of, of tech art dear uh, i'm fortunate enough to be in the collection of ann and michael spalter who are involved in risd and they have a, an incredible collection of early digital art hmm. that's been shown at the museum of modern art and all these other uh, venues so that's kind of amazing but to answer your question inkjet printers and plotters didn't really become large scale until i think it was epson or canon uh, started in like 2000, 2002, something like that. Yeah, because I remember both of them kind of going neck to neck a lot. Yeah. Because I remember that. It's like Canon would have put out a model that everyone would, you know, swoon over, and then Epson would up one, and then, you know, Canon would up that. Yep, exactly. So it doesn't really, nothing has really changed in that world, but. No, no, they're all, yeah. They're still exactly. upping each other. But to answer your question, you know, NFTs just seem to be a logical, well, first of all, the famous white paper that was written for Bitcoin, Nakamoto. Yep, Nakamoto. Yeah, yeah. yeah and no one knows who that is, and I, so that's sort of. I don't well, think people. They have theories. They, uh, they do. Yeah. But the idea of that sort of being this huge problem that was solved, they've been working on for thirty years, is sort of this demarcation in the land that many people don't understand in terms of where digital has gone. Yeah. So, learning about that, I thought, well, that's there's going to be a lot of hype, obviously, around it. But it's also a legitimate new frontier for making your work last into perpetuity. I know that it's mixed with the idea of currency, which is perhaps, you know, fraud. But if you're going to, you know, the idea of minting something and having it last into perpetuity, 
because the idea of conservation and you make something and everything, you know, what's permanent, so that was what was appealing to me. So I started looking into sort of minting my work because it was already digital. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. seemed like a natural thing to do. That would be a natural fit, yeah. What intrigues you most about the uh, manipulation of font? Because a lot of your work does, I'd see the font, in it, but it's the manipulation that is what gets you going or is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to put it simply, I've struggled with dyslexia as a kid. They, they thought, you know, in that time, there wasn't, they didn't understand what that meant. Yeah. The, they call it a learning difference now. I actually call it a real gift. I think it's a total gift because it made me see patterns differently. I'm not saying I'm special. I'm just saying there was a wiring, sympathetic, nervous wiring that I have that lets me see patterns differently than the way they wanted me to learn them. Mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. seeing the outlines of shapes and I don't necessarily know if that's a P or a Q, but I know which way it's facing and its orientation. So the thing I was doing was sort of taking the outlines of letter shapes and superimposing them one in front of the other. So I could sort of see its orientation on this two-dimensional plane. And then I thought, well, with these software programs and illustrator programs, like it was Quark Express, and now I'm using Illustrator and Affinity Designer and all that. Oh, yeah. These are tools that allow graphic designers to really manipulate. But, you know, they only use a couple of words here and there. I'm using, like, pages of text, and I'm thinking, I want more. I want more. I want to build up these sort of thick layers that speak to this weird way I have of seeing patterns. And I, I don't really know how or why. I just knew that it was something I liked seeing, and it sort of went from there. Why layers? Because it speaks to time. Mm. There's sort of an archaeological element to it. think about that. Okay. So, you know, when you, when you go in a dig, I'm not an archaeologist, but from what I've seen in all the documentaries, <laughs> they go through these layers yeah. of earth or rock. Or when a meteorite hits the ground, they cut it open and they see what's built up inside of it. And in the building up of these layers, there's a story. So I've got a story on two levels. One is that I'm using an actual story, this, this text right. as a story. I'm sort of deconstructing it into these layers, which tells another story graphically of its own making. Like this goes in front of that, goes in front of this. And it's tricky because if you just throw a lot of stuff together and build it up, it can all turn to shit. You know, it's just yeah. this big mess. The trick of it is you or me or someone is going to make something. You have your own aesthetic sort of internal compass that's going to say, this should go there, that should go there, and that looks right. And, and you don't really have a definitive answer, but you're, you know, you're like composing it. Like a musician composes music. How do they know what note comes next? I don't know. They just can hear it, and it feels, it has a harmonic to it. Yeah. That's sort of like a visual harmonic is what I'm looking for. Going back to your days in school design. Yeah. How much of that do you still apply today, or have you just completely rejected it? That's an interesting question. You know, everyone says, well, you got to throw out the rules and invent your own stuff. And yeah, that I mean, I think that that's a bit of a conceit hmm. because I, I come from the school of thought that I want to know all the rules first. So I'm conscious of what I'm breaking and whether I'm really being innovative, or whether I'm just imitating something else. And I don't mean that to sound like I know more. I just love knowing the history of things. Oh, yeah. So I can sort of put my place in the, you know, in the context of it. So I, I value the training and I trained up hard. I really studied the history of typography and going back to the Gutenberg days and oh. what the movable type and how that changed society and everyone could print their own copy of the Bible and what that did. You know, all of that stuff yeah. impacts the way we 
you know, sort of receive information today on our phones. So I, I value that. But to be fair, then I sort of threw all that out. And I know it's still churning back there, mm-hmm. but I've kind of made up my own rules. Because that makes sense to me, because this is my interpretation of that, is that it's, it becomes a subconscious thing. Yes. Like you, because I had design classes at the Wazoo, for, you know, when I went to school. Sure. And, and they would always instill, it's like, these are not rules, these are tools. Yes. And if you break the tool you may not be able to use the tool. Yes. That was really what was instilled in us at the time. Now, since then, I, I just feel like, I, like what you're saying, it's just like, did I reject those rules or did they just get buried in subconsciously? Uh, you know, I don't mean for this to sound contrived, yeah. but when you think about great jazz musicians, a lot of them were really trained up classically or a yeah. lot weren't, but they understand the structure of music. And, you know, when Bird steps out on a solo or Miles Davis or whatever, and they just do these things in the moment where you go, how in the world did they get there? They understand the structure of music, but then they just step out. And I think that that is the kind of thing I'm talking about. It, it doesn't happen in a, well, it can, but, yeah. you know, what I do has to be iterative step by step. So it can take the magic out of it. But when I turn off the computer, come back the next day and open it up, I'm like, oh, there it is. It's this, it looks uh, spontaneous. Yeah, It has yeah. the same sort of feeling of, of what I think a jazz musician is going for, which is to be true to the moment and also go with the flow of what is happening. And it's up to the receiver to decide if it's for them or not. Yeah, we're kind of bumping up close to what we and I were talking about earlier. Yeah. The philosophical type of question about who finishes the work, is it the artist or the viewer? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think about that? Oh, you put me on the spot. <laughs> well, I, I think that it's a, it's a collaboration because you're giving them enough information for them to finish it for mm. them. Mm. And to me, where there's a twist in that logic is the fact that I gave it enough information for myself to finish it. Mm-hmm. So it's a big fat gray zone. That's how I interpret that. And that's my opinion yeah, yeah. to no, that. I respect that. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, would, I would layer onto that that depending on what it is people are experiencing, the more it parallels their everyday experience, the easier it is for them to sort of finish the narrative. And yeah. by that I mean, talking about the visual art, Right. if there's a portrait of a tiger in the forest and there's something funny about the color of the sky or the leaves are strange, people still understand the narrative right away because they can see and identify what it is and they file it away. Oh, I understand that. But if someone else does that picture, and it's just a mass of vertical orange and black and green lines, and they call it tiger in the forest, a person's going to stop and go, where's the tiger? Oh, wait a minute. Where's the forest? Exactly. Yeah. And they're faced with a whole other challenge of interpreting what they're seeing. My right. point is, the more abstract something becomes, the more... Conceptual it becomes. Yes. And it's a different experience for people. So some people like to have the experience, and other people do not like that experience at all and don't want to be asked those kinds of questions. So, or, yeah, they will re- completely reject it, yeah. So to answer your question, they are finishing the work. So, again, the artist can be provocative and say, I'm messing with you. Or the artist can say, I'm not messing with you. I'm sincerely communicating in this new way that doesn't present an identifiable image. It's up to you to complete it. I, I'm kind of in that camp, although I would add something else. And this is, again, I, I, I'm sort of getting wound up here. But. <laughs> well, it's my job to wind you up. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try and lay this out as clearly as I can without sounding like, you know, I've, I've eaten some mushrooms. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to present 
the thing itself in addition to a thing depicted. Mm. So, for example, the piece that we saw yesterday at the Seattle Art Fair yeah. is a sort of a simple graphical plus sign on this field of tiny black elements that make a kind of a mesh. At first, it looks minimal, but when you step up to it, it starts to get sort of visually fizzy. It like vibrates and does all these sort of optical effects. So what I'm presenting is this phenomenon, which I kind of make an analogy to sound, like you've tuned a musical instrument. Oh, so yeah. I'm trying to visually tune the things I'm making so that the person experiencing it first sees an object, but then there's this phenomenon. So that's the thing itself. There's this actual physical vibration yeah. happening. Talking to another artist earlier in the day at the fair, yeah, at the Seattle Art Fair, and we kind of broached on the same idea about getting enticed into looking into the work. Yeah, and it is important to go and look at the work. I mean, let me redefine that as in look closer, look into it, because it's using your you know words like it's another layer to get into, mm -hmm. and it helps also for a person who may not understand the concept to start to come up with their own concept, if anything else. And also maybe discover that you have the same idea that the artist does. Because mm -hmm. concept is just definition for idea. And a lot of people kind of forget that. I mean, that's just my opinion piece. No, 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 no. I, 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 I'm, I'm taking that in. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense. When you see a viewer looking at your work, what do you kind of hope that they would come out of that work? Even mm. though we just talked about they bring it in and you bring it into together. Sure. If they were to walk away from it, what was the one thing that you would hope that they would get? I would say that they had a feeling that there was something in the work that describes what it's like to be alive in the world. Hmm. And that's a very broad statement, but maybe I could drill down a little bit by going back to the music analogy. When we're listening to music, you know, we don't ask ourselves, what does this sound like? I mean, we might, there might be a problem with the sound, but strictly speaking, we're listening to melody and music is the, one of the few forms of art that you can do another activity while you're experiencing it. That's a valid point, yeah. You're feeling it. Yeah. And it doesn't interfere. Whereas looking at something, it's very hard to do other things. You know, we're vision, primarily vision-based creatures, so yes. we really have to focus in. What I would hope that they would experience is this similar sense of having the same kind of experience as music, that it, it speaks on almost a spiritual level. I know that's loaded, but move them in some way to think, huh, there's something ineffable here beyond just the immediate graphical element. There's another element to it. You know, people talk about Rothko that way. They talk about a lot of other artists that have a kind of a a secondary feeling, this emotional feeling that comes through. And I often wonder, does that second kind of feeling happen in the moment, so to speak, or does yeah. it happen later, like it's a delayed reaction? Well, it's a very interesting question. I think we're all unique that way. Yeah. Each one of us is really wired. Although we perceive things, we seem to perceive things similarly, it's pretty clear that we're all perceiving reality in our own way. Yeah, I and agree. Yeah. For some people, it, and again, I, I don't always have the privilege of observing people see my work, but when I do, I'm fascinated, not because I'm attached to them liking it. I would love for them to like it. Well, yeah, yeah of course. I'm, I, it's not in my business. It's up to them what they do. But I could tell, sort of, that, that people are getting this sort of feeling right away. And other people will look and move on. I think, oh, okay. It didn't register that way with them. Right. I'm fascinated by that. It's all, you know, it's, it's all good. 
Well, it is all good. And as long as they don't destroy the work. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, but, they're gonna... but that's another whole topic for another day. <laughs> so how does color play into all of this that you do? Oh, wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. It, I have, it has been my white whale. I have struggled with color and I have felt like I've got some mastery over color and then got schooled again over color. <laughs> I have a huge enthusiasm for grayscale work, you know, Jasper John's work. Right, or monochromatic. Um, yeah. Yes, monochrome stuff. And then also a huge love of really intense color. The interesting thing for me is how arbitrary color is. I mean, there's two things I want to say here. Yeah. Society's appropriation of color as, as a label for people, I think, is heinous. It is. I think it's... There's it's, no logic to it. No. And it could be other words. It could be other values, short, tall, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's just arbitrary and stupid. Yep. So I sort of will go back to the, to the you know, more scientific validation of what color is, which is a, a spot on a frequency of a spectrum of light that we can see. I, I tend to go back to first principles because I'm a bit of a nerd that way. <laughs> so I can define color as this range of electromagnetic vibrations. Right. And everything is waves and vibrations anyway. So if I think about color that way, I think about the, the kind of false color maps that they put on planets to show you this is higher than this, that's lower than that. Yeah. And how do those scientists pick those colors? They don't care. It's completely arbitrary. It's arbitrary, yeah. So look at this false color stuff, and I think that's really cool because they're using color as a tool to sort of differentiate information. So I adopt a lot of those modalities. In other words, I'll use colors for reasons that they, these colors don't belong together, but it doesn't matter. They're, they're communicating something else. And then on the other side of it, I'll spend a lot of time investigating the classic sort of rules of color theory and, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and investigating all of that. You know. Yeah, I was going to say how much, but you kind of just answered that because I was about to ask how much does color theory play into a it. Lot, but, yeah, a lot. It does There's play a, a lot. Uh, Joseph Alper's book on color, the, the double oh. volume. Um, I can't remember the exact title at the moment, but that's a real go-to Reference. You, you know the book that uh, was my eye-opener when it came to color theory and made me finally cemented how I understand it? Yeah. Was the book that came out was called uh, Yellow and Blue Don't Make Green. Interesting. Basically, the author, she just goes through different mediums and say, okay, well, this is going to be a different shade of green versus like uh, an oil paint or an acrylics or uh, oil sticks mm. or, you know, all of sure, that. Sure, they're going to represent it differently. It gets rep- represented differently. That just clicked for me. So then I, that's when I started kind of understanding the power of color theory and the color of power, you know, yeah. power. And, and yeah, yeah. besides, we only see 16 million colors. Yeah. And there's a shrimp out there, and I forgot the name of the shrimp, that sees like more... Uh, all the colors. Of course. That's a fascinating point. Butterflies can see ultraviolet. Right. Flowers have bullseyes in them that we can't see, that no. insects and pollinators can see. Uh, it just blows my mind. Yeah, and I'm a little jealous that they can see that, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. You know, just to, just to kick that point down the road a little bit further, Yeah. the idea of synesthesia, that oh. you're hearing music but seeing color this, some people have this condition yeah which is fascinating to me it is and very i met I, a, uh, an artist who who did that really does that figure it, into their work it if it, it's all of her work is that amazing yeah and um i haven't been able to interview her but i would love to but uh it is crazy yeah you know, yeah, yeah, yeah she sees it and, and no matter what the style of music is and it's reflective in her work it's just it's very almost dreamy Yes. How she, her approach is. Yes. Uh, uh, the author and scientist Oliver Sacks wrote about that. It's fascinating. Again, it points to how arbitrary. I mean, again, we're all perceivers and we're all perceived. We all think we see the same thing. Pretty much we do. 
but our equipment part. is is wired to see things in a particular way and we're sort of stuck in that worldview and it just makes me think how arbitrary that is this web telescope that's out there by oh, the way yeah it's the most amazing wow, what a gift to be alive at a time when that thing exists uh -huh. because it's going to use infrared frequencies wavelengths to see into the you know the distant past we can't see infrared it's heat for us yep. but it's just another stone's throw down the road of electromagnetic vibrations away from seeing. Much, yeah it's amazing I also wanted to comment that a yeah. color doesn't exist until you name it. Profound. And profound. yeah, that was also very profound when I kind of realized that. Because it's a scale, the electromagnetic spectrum. It's just, it's, it, it, one slides into the next. There's no specific green. There's just this demarcation where they're like, okay, we got to name this spot right here. Yep. Yeah. Just to think about the sounds or the words. Sure. To say, we'll call that green mm -hmm. or red. And uh, red was the first color to be named is that right yeah and then eventually i think it was them blue and red and green oh no green was last actually because a lot of people would just call green blue mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it, it is interesting about the history of color like that yeah and i don't know enough about uh indigenous cultures although i'm fascinated by it particularly weaving and all those early digital forms of, of assemblage but their words for color because the sky was so important to them yeah and the color of crops you know the way they had to organize their lives around yeah. the colors of things to know when they were ready to eat or what you know whatever to do with them it's psychological and it's wired in into the lizard part of our brain too about how we perceive the color like the apple's red that means it's ripe and safe to eat you know <laughs> this is but deep. something yeah this i know deep, well, sorry i didn't mean to get no, you there don't but. apologize <laughs> this is where i want to go <laughs> listeners i hope you're going with us on this deep dive into color theory well, I hope so, because if they're not, they're missing out, you know? <laughs> but it's when you start thinking about colors, like when someone feels sick, green or yeah. yellow, yes. that is something that's been wired in us. And like the most visible color that humans can see is actually kind of that lime yellow fluorescent. Mm. And that's why you see a lot of nowadays, you see a lot of people wear this perfective vest uh, or fire trucks and ambulances have that. Humans can see that color, even if you're colorblind. Interesting. That's uh, my lesson for the day. So you know, <laughs> call me Professor Jason. Thank you, Professor Jason. <laughs> I do a lot of reading on color stuff because color is very interesting. It's fascinating. It is. And it feeds back into the work that a lot of artists do. And it feeds back into uh, also to your mood. Yeah. It goes back to that describing earlier, like a sixth sense. Whereas music can tap into that mood or to that feeling. And artists, visual artists, have to also tap into that as well because color, it could be interpreted in so many different ways. Because yeah. you talk about different cultures around the planet. Obvious one is like, uh, in our culture, it means red means stop. It means mm -hmm. bad. It means mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. In other cultures, it's good luck. Mm -hmm. Like especially in Asian cultures. Mm -hmm. That's what is very interesting about how culturally and everything, we use color to help tell our stories. Absolutely. And I try the best I can when I'm working in the studio to step out of the human gravity well of influence and that kind of thinking Yeah, and pay my respects to color itself and say, I don't want to come in with any preconceived notions. Sometimes I may want to communicate an emotion that I can't help. I'm imprinted with, yeah. but I don't want to bring all that baggage in with it. I think color is so joyful to experience. And I, I'm trying not to influence it with, you know, with what you're describing, which is extremely important to understand, I think. It is. And it will be something that we'll, we'll try to figure out and understand for 
more millennia as long as Absolutely. our species exist. Let's talk about the show that we're at right now. So how did you get involved with this group show here at the Seattle NFT Museum? Uh, I was contacted by the curator, Joanna, and she reached out and said that she had heard my work from the founders of the museum who oh. had visited my studio after the uh, museum opened last December. We had a beautiful studio visit and weren't quite sure how we were going to work together. And the concept for this show is artists who work digitally and then discovered the NFT paradigm. There are artists who are working strictly straight to NFT these days, but there are others that are sort of, I mean, this is a very wide ranging uh, kind of a modality yeah. working digitally. It's just, it's one word, but it describes a lot of different methods. Uh, I describe desktop publishing and um, illustration, um, graphic design. So that's sort of my background. I was trained as a traditional painter with liquid paint on brushes yeah and then trained up digitally so i had this whole sort of historical reference anyway that sort of is a beautiful transition into projecting this digital work into the into the blockchain so that's the theme of the show all the artists here have got digital work that they have found a way to either condense or transform or write code for or simply capture and then mint it uh, and it's, it's all blockchain. Minted. Yeah. Yeah. All of this is on the blockchain. Yep. Well, I think that's our, our cue. <laughs> so I want to ask you this one extra question. So sure. this is the one that I, oh, okay. I prepped. I, I warned you about it. <laughs> so what advice would you give your past self and to other artists? If I could visit my past self, I would say fear is the mind killer. And that dealing with fear is going to be the biggest challenge as a creator because we're I found myself always trying to second guess what my next move was going to be. Can't know where we're going to end up. But, you know, the, the rationale is every step that came before is responsible for where we are now. But you don't know that at the time. And I spent a lot of time worrying. And I think I would tell myself, just go with the flow, follow your joy, and it's going to work out just fine. That's some good advice. Uh, well, thank you for, for that advice. Absolutely. I want to say thank you to Henry for taking the time to do the interview. If you want to learn more about his work and see it, head to his website at henrymendel.com. All one word. Henry is also on Instagram at Henry Mendel Studio. To hear this episode and past episodes of Artbox, go to the website at artboxdnv.com. And ArtboxDNV is on Instagram at ArtboxDNV. So until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>